Hello and welcome to episode 26 of The Wind Thieved Hat. I first came across the writing of Oliver Berman in his weekly column for the Guardian newspaper. Each week, beneath the gently ironic title of This Column Will Change Your Life, Oliver would ponder on an idea or technique intended to make modern living just a little easier. He'd cut through the worst excesses of the cult of positive thinking with his laser-guided wit and somehow, in so doing, unearth genuinely useful insights, not least about creativity and the way we work. Now he's written two books with a third on the way and I really love how he threads together ancient truths from Stoicism and Buddhism together with discoveries from the latest research into neuroscience and human behaviour. Our conversation, which was recorded remotely, begins with his own writing process, before we go on to explore the evils of procrastination and perfectionism, and the universal curse of self-doubt. Oliver explains why, when you're feeling overwhelmed, becoming more efficient is maybe the worst thing you can do, and he shares a really brilliant tip on how to navigate those tough calls one has to make in life about whether a job or a relationship or a life change is the right thing to do. And if you listen really carefully, about two-thirds of the way through, you'll hear my local ice cream van making his rounds. This is a thought-provoking conversation with a lovely human being in possession of a very large brain. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Oliver. Hello. Hello. It's really nice to uh, have you join me on The Wind Thieved Hat. I, uh, I've been reading your stuff for quite a long time. <laughs> I'm always, it's always a mixed, uh, a mi- I never know how to feel about that. I'm very glad, but it also makes me feel old that I could have been doing enough stuff for people to be reading it for a long time. You know what I mean? Well, it, the Saturday Guardian is, is, is <laughs> one of my treats, and I, I would often turn to your column uh, and fi- find myself musing. Uh, for the rest of the day on the uh, on the pearls contained within. Excellent, glad to hear it. For this interview, I've I've been dipping into your two uh, two books, The Antidote and Help, and we've never met. And I, I I'm reading these books and the column over the years, and and they're they're full of sort of wisdom and serenity and insights. <laughs> so I've developed this sort of notion in my head of you as some kind of <laughs> zen-like master floating above the clouds, uh, it, utterly serene and highly productive. Am, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can sort of, I can try and give that impression. Um, no, I mean, I, you know, I think, I think that all of this writing that I do is some form of self-therapy, by which I don't mean that it's deceptive. I don't mean that I haven't reached these insights and acquired this wisdom and, and found it in places and sort of tried to internalize it. But I do think that you just don't write about stuff or do other creative work about stuff that you're not on some level struggling with, right? I mean, sure. if, it's all, if it was easy for me to be productive and zen and not feel anxious and uh, in the case of the book I've got coming out, you know, confront my the, the limitation of my time and life I don't think it would hold any interest for me so um you know I I do think about this quite a lot because because when you're on some level I am dispensing advice I might sort of feel queasy about that and not want to use those terms but I think it is on some level um and so like yeah what what do you what what is the standpoint from which you do that I think the best hope is that it's sort of 
someone who deals with all this stuff as much as anyone else sure. and has maybe had a bit of extra time to spend professionally reading and thinking and writing about it. Um, so, you know, at, at the best, maybe I'm a couple of inches ahead of, of the people who are reading it, and that's all that, that's all that's needed. Sure. Well, that, well that's reassuring. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm less less daunted now. <laughs> yeah, no, don't be daunted. <laughs> and um, uh, how, how, did, how did you find your way into this sort of particular niche? I, I presume you began as a more sort of regular jobbing journalist. Is that right? Yeah, I'd always wanted to be a journalist from uh, from a sort of annoyingly young age um, and was making sort of photocopied newsletters for my primary school uh, classmates to um, have to accept. <laughs> I don't know that they were ever read. Um, and then, yeah, I started in as a sort of as a as a sort of general news and feature writer. I got into this stuff. Honestly, I mean, I was I was interested in these kind of subjects as a as a reader of books as a as a sort of um reader of of websites and my editor then at the guardian weekend magazine Marapi mills was the one who sort of first thought well if i was going she was going to see me with these productivity books around the office she was going to get some content i out see of it. and the, the the column originally was uh was her idea and your position uh, for, for for anybody who's not read any of your work yet? Although I'm sure after this, uh, if they haven't, they will. Um, is 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 kind of um, you, you don't hurl yourself into these ideas with abandon, do you? There's a there's a there's a healthy <laughs> maybe a Yorkshire um, uh, uh, scepticism. Yeah, I mean I, it's interesting because I know when I very first began. Um, the column, you know, all those years ago now, it was scepticism verging on cynicism, right? I mean, I thought it was funny, and I still think it's funny to some extent to sort of be a bit sarcastic about the the worst actors in this field of self-help uh, and sort of life advice. But I think if I'm honest, looking back, there was an element of kind of, there was an element of that which was like a defense mechanism, right? It's like um, sure. these topics are embarrassing but if you're looking into them for work and you're then being a bit sarcastic um then then surely you can't be so embarrassed and so actually the most interesting thing for me it happened quite quickly like within a year or two of starting the column not not just recently um it became very clear to me that the kind of the really interesting part of this was not actually taking down the self-help gurus who in the eyes of the sort of typical guardian reader i think i didn't need to take them down and those you know they were already as skeptical as, as me it was actually the opposite it was actually kind of pointing out where despite all the cheesiness and and uh, a certain element of charlatanry um there was value and and i think the the world changed around i mean it wasn't much, wasn't due to me but like we did over the course of the sort of main decade that i was writing that column i think i think um we have got a bit better in Britain and everywhere probably at um, talking about things like mental illness and psychotherapy and just sort of uh, and realising that as sort of things like burnout at, at work become more intense issues that they're kind of universals rather than things to be terribly ashamed about admitting. So, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think it was me that did it, but I do think that by the time I wrapped up that column, uh, there was a there was a lot less sort of knee-jerk uh, um, cynicism uh, toward that sort of subject matter. Sure. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quiz you shortly on, on, on <clears> some <throat> of the um, 
some of the things you have written about. But I'm interested in your process as a writer. You know, you, you, you're the third book, the four thousand weeks, which is the next book comes out yeah. um, in the UK shortly, doesn't it? I think uh, end of August, August the twenty sixth. End of August, yeah. Date. yeah. And before that, there was help um, and the antidote. Over the course of three books, what have you what have you learned about how to write a book? <laughs> the thing is, I am totally fascinated by this question, a bit more in other people's cases than my own, because I feel like I might scoop up some key insight. Um, so I will, yeah, you'll have to stop me uh, going on and on about this. At the same time, it isn't that I have come up with, I don't think, a really fixed uh, single way of doing it. I think a, a few years ago, I sort of finally realized that I was never going to come up with a single habit set that was going to stay with me for the whole of the rest of my professional life. And it was very liberating to be like, okay, every few months I'm going to tweak my system and see how it, you know, reacts in a way that is responsive to sort of to where I'm at. Um, That said, I think there are sort of principles that, that, that emerge. um, And one of those when it comes to to writing is just um i mean it's it's maybe not so surprising but is just doing anything i can to prioritize this idea of steady tiny incremental progress over um vast exhausting binges i think it's not true for everybody but i feel like i have there was actually something kind of i i came up through newspapers obviously in a, in a very deadline driven environment and this yeah. although it's very good in certain ways it gets you over yourself it means that within the first week you're putting out writing that you that you're not confident is perfect and guess what it never is going to be so that's a good a good discipline but it also um it reinforces something kind of unpleasant where you yeah you end up kind of working flat out for a number of days, and then you sort of do nothing at all for several days afterwards as you kind of recover from the from the binge. And although it's a way of getting things done when there's an editor getting very impatient and drumming his fingers on the desk nearby, it, it does sort of end, end up sort of reinforcing this idea that writing is always going to be a, an incredibly arduous battle and you're going to have to like do that thing again next time you want to do it. So what I've had to relearn in the context of books is that is that art of saying you know I'm only going to even try to do 500 words today 700 words today I'm only going to try to work for two or three hours on this project and then I'm going to focus on showing up to do that like day after day after day I read a book and wrote about it a while ago actually called How Writer's Journey to Comfort and Fluency by an American psychology professor called Robert Boyce which cost about a hundred pounds print on demand if you find it on Amazon. Um, so as a service to readers, I wrote a column about it. And, um, uh, you know, there's an awful lot in there. He studied academic writers and their habits for the whole of most of his career. But one of the really crucial takeaways I, I, I got from that is this idea of stopping when those little those little periods are up, right? So we're, right. we think so much about, can you get to starting for an hour, two hours, but mm-hmm. but he would say, you know, uh, the writers who got the most done that he witnessed over their careers wrote in very short bursts, maybe as little as 10 minutes, but never more than about four hours for a professional full-time writer. And they stopped when time, when the time was up, even if they felt like they were on a roll and you wanted to kind of capitalize on that, on that energy. So stepping away from something is, right. is, 
I've found to be just as important. We can go into why, but it basically just it's it's to do with not reinforcing that kind of impatience dynamic that makes you feel like you've got to keep going and turns the role of writing into this kind of kind. Of, that's the other thing Boyce says. It's like you know, it should never the the the, cent, the creative center of whatever you're doing should never be more than a modestly important part of your weekly schedule because otherwise it's just too intimidating and yeah, and it doesn't get done. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. I think I, I guess one of the uh, one of the most common problems people have across across all different media when it comes to creativity is is this question of uh, well, this issue of procrastination that um, mm. we struggle um, against this sort of looming monolith that is the work um, and the, the the idea of of making it seems just too daunting. Um, I wonder yeah. how you have discovered ways of beating this thing, this thief. <laughs> well, I'll share my thoughts, but only if you promise to tell me some others, because uh, I, uh, I, I need them still. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, but, I mean, in the forthcoming book, actually, I go into this a bit because I think that um, about the relationship between perfectionism and procrastination, and I think there's a really important insight that comes from thinking hard about how limited our time is and how limited our control over our time is and how limited our talents are, even the most talented people. You know, you hear people saying things like you've got to be willing to fail and, and you've got to sort of, you've got to be okay with the idea that a project is not going to turn out perfectly and that this kind of fear holds people back. But I think you can go further. I think you can say, and it's much more relaxing and motivating, I think, you can say, it's guaranteed that it's not going to turn out perfectly, right? There's a sort of a certain kind of failure is built in to um, yeah. bringing stuff into the world. Um, there was a piece I quoted in a book for, by a philosopher called uh, Kostika Bradatan, who wrote it in the New York Times a few years ago around this parable. I think it's meant to be a, a, an architect who built the world, who designed the world's most beautiful mosque, and then but then he can't build it because any if he actually got it built, that would mean bringing it into reality. And once you bring it into reality, um, it, it can only mean, you know, imperfection and decay and people doing, doing it wrongly and all the rest of it. And I think there's, I think there's something really liberating about the idea that, like, not you might fail, but you've already failed. If the standard is perfection, yeah. like, it, it's over. Yeah, yeah. That ship yeah. has sailed. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a nice book by uh, Kay Tempest. I don't know if you know Kay Tempest, the, the writer, poet, musician. I know the name. And, and, and in the book, uh, Kay talks about how a writer is destined to fail, that an idea is a beautiful, soaring thing, and right. the writer cannot help but injure it as they, as they put it down on the page. And, right. and I guess maybe, maybe, maybe this is a distinction between somebody who is a professional creative and, and, and somebody who is, who is keen to start a project but can never quite get over the line, is, is that the, the, the professional creative has, to a degree, come to terms with the limits of their capability. Right. Yes. No, that's a really good, that's a really nice way of putting it. And it's to do with control as well, right? Because if you never, if you want to feel, and one of my sort of arguments in the new book is that we go wrong in an awful, awful lot of ways in our use of time, because we're more invested in feeling in control of how things unfold than in allowing them to unfold in the most, in the way that we'd actually find most fulfilling. And the thing of procrastination is very closely linked to this because, you know, you're sort of, you stay in control of a project if you never mm -hmm. start it. Right, it remains inside in this 
sort of beautiful state that you're talking about. Bradatan in the piece I mentioned compares this, I think, to the Gnostic, the Gnostic uh, philosophers, theologians of whenever they were around many centuries ago. This idea that on some level all creation is a kind of terrible error, and um, and everything is just a kind of compared to the pure idea, everything in reality is just a sort of gradual collapse into into sort of entropy and and and, and rubbishness and, and if, if you can i find that very relaxing because it means yeah. that you know yeah. um it's not just me who's going to be sending off an email newsletter or a book chapter thinking that's not as good as it could in principle have been done it's going to be literally everybody yeah I think if there's, I, I've, I've immersed myself in the antidote and help over the past couple of weeks. So I, I've been sort of aware of themes. And I think if there is, you know, there, there are maybe a few, but, but what I've noticed is that you seem to really underscore the value of acceptance. That a lot of sort of positive thinking and manuals and stuff project this kind of idealized state that one should aspire to and then give you the steps to get there. But you seem to begin from the position of accepting things as they are, our talent as flawed and our environment and space and resources maybe is limited and, 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 and then beginning from there. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think the thing I always want to say about acceptance is, you know, it's not the same as resignation or as I saw someone else put it recently, it's not the same as agreement, right? We're not talking about looking at your situation and saying this is how it's got to be. You're talking about looking at your situation and saying this is actually how it is. Mm-hmm. And people get, people in a sort of political frame of this, people get very worried that acceptance means, you know, you've got to accept the current state of the world, the, the current socioeconomic arrangements. Or if you're in a terrible relationship, you've got to accept that it's terrible and stay in it. No, you've got to accept that things are as they are, not that, not that things always must be as they are. And in fact, accepting that they are as they are is the beginning of changing them. I think that's what I was trying to get at in the positive thinking book and the antidote. You know, the point of a lot of that kind of philosophy is not just to say, if you think in this way, you know, you might change yourself into the kind of person that uh, can do good things, be happy, whatever. It's it's actually sort of asking you to put a, a, a an overlay over the reality you're actually in and pretend that it's something that it isn't. Yeah. You know, now you mention it, that theme of like, are you going to be in reality or are you going to spend your life trying not trying to feel like you're not in reality is totally central to the new book as well. Because I think that one of the things I'm talking about is the way that so much advice on how to use our time actually get ends up serving, it ends up enabling this, this desire to feel not really in the reality that we're in. And if you can just a little bit get over that and feel the discomfort of it, it's actually really empowering because then you're dealing with things as they are. And that's the position from which you can like do cool stuff. Absolutely. There's, there's, there's my little snippet. Um, uh, having, having explored this, this whole sort of area myself quite a lot, one, 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 um, the, the, the question of creativity, one, one, one thing that I uh, find um, again and again is, is something that the nun, Carita Kent, she was a nun in um, uh, California in the 60s, and uh, she discovered... Right. Uh, an extraordinary talent for screen printing. And she made these uh, beautiful, really colourful, powerful, often text-driven screen prints that are a long way from what you would expect a nun to make. And and in the end, she became so successful that the Catholic Church kicked her out. But she she was an art teacher. And one of the things she said is... um, 
creativity and evaluation are different processes. Um, and I think often people sort of mix up the two and, and, and start making something yeah. and, and, and evaluate it uh, when there are just a couple of sentences down on the page or, or a few marks on the canvas. And, and it, it sort of arrests that, that momentum that one might have. Yeah, um, I think I, I totally see that. I think I'm actually quite bad at that. I, don't, I think this is something that I struggle with a lot. I think as a writer, I have always tended towards trying to make it perfect the first time. Right. And I sort of prided myself in newspapers that, you know, like my copy would need like no attention from anybody because it would be essentially ready to, 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 to publish. And I, I feel like there's a tension here, isn't there? Because, I, I mean, if I'm just speaking honestly, and I'm not saying this is a good thing for anyone else to follow, but if I am speaking honestly, the kind of writing I'm doing, the implicit reader is sort of always there in my head. I find it very hard. And it's not maybe the, quite the same of what you're saying, but I do find it very hard to embrace this idea of, um, you know, first of all, just put put it down for yourself and then then be the editor. I, and I am sort of always editing I think part of the way that just a very sort of low-level technical way for anyone who's listening for, who, who's, whose thing is writing specifically, um, uh, one of the ways I combat this is but through the diff- choice of software I use. So I end up sort right. of um, typing out a rough draft in a te- in just in text edit on my Mac and then printing it out and then typing it back in to a different word processor okay. um, from the page. I mean, it's all totally stupid. There's none of, none, of it, none of it needs to be followed. But the point is just that I think that enables me to think of that first piece of software more as a, as a playground or a sandbox yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, and then I'm sort of forcing it through a sausage machine of my mind yeah. into, the, into the version that's in Microsoft Word or whatever. Um, so I think what I'm doing there is trying to embrace that idea, but yeah. I'm not, it does not come naturally to me. Right. A gentler beginning in text. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess one of the, uh, one of the common afflictions when it comes to the creative process is, 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 is self doubt. The, 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 mm. the terrors of our own minds, you know, um, mm. where we question whether we're any good and whether there is any point at all in, in doing this thing that is often not very well paid and quite painful. <laughs> right. Um, uh, and obviously you, you, you've considered this question a lot, but, um, but I guess let, 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 let's make it a bit specific. If, if, if there was somebody listening now who um, is beginning to question whether this thing that they do, that maybe in the past they felt compelled to do, to create, is, is going anywhere, what, 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 what learnings have you discovered for, for somebody wrestling with self-doubt? I mean, I, when I look back at the stuff I've written about this, about imposter syndrome, about um, sort of dealing with uncertainty and all the rest of it, I find there is this kind of the, the, the common dynamic in all of this is is to go toward the sort of universal truth of the self-doubt rather than to go in the direction of saying like, no, 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 you're actually a genius. Don't, don't worry about it. It's to go it's to go with saying, yes, like you and everybody else, um, the reason that you feel like you're just sort of winging it is because literally everyone is feels like they're winging it because literally everyone is in the same position with regard to the future, right? We, we're all just on the leading edge of the moment. We have no idea what's going to happen next. And that's as true for presidents as it is for anybody else. You know, I think it's much, I think it's much easier to live with self-doubt when you understand it as, as a part of life and a part that everyone is mm. feeling 
rather than or almost everybody uh, the only people who are not feeling it are the ones who ought to be feeling more of it yeah um it, it, it sort of neutralizes it in a much nicer way and i think one of the one of the points that um i always go back to when i'm writing about this and often have to remind myself of as well is like it's so obvious but the reason that you can only hear your internal dialogue of self-doubt and you can't hear anybody else's is because you only have access to your own mind not not because they're not uh having those internal uh dialogues and as i say i really i think the only people who may not be are the sort of people who are kind of yeah. ruining everything in one way or another it's just a reflection of it's just a, it's just a sign of being in touch with the way things actually are yeah. to feel that you don't know how something is going to unfold i mean quite right yes you, you don't and for me that direction that sort of like stop trying to make this thing go away because then you have to sort of then it feels like you're committed to constantly pushing it away for the whole of your life like holding it at bay yeah and it's so much better to just like let it in um of course i'm sounding like i always have this wonderfully great <laughs> response to self-doubt and i don't yeah but, um, yeah yeah no, i i think it's very true that um it's there for for, for everyone there's a, there's a nice line by um the writer Anne Enright, who says, um, only bad writers think their writing is any good, um, <laughs> right. which, I, which 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 I hang on to. <laughs> and there's also there's also a cycle. Like in the middle in the middle of a four hour writing period, I occasionally do think I'm the greatest writer ever. But by the end yeah. of it, I know I'm the worst one ever. So. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, but, and of course, and of course, neither of these extremes are likely <laughs> to be true. So. No, and it's these little moments of delusion that sustain us, perhaps <laughs> yes, as well. Right. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. It's funny because it, it, it's so easy, isn't it, to look on at people who've who've ostensibly made it. You know, who've got the, mm-hmm. the 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 prizes or the you know the New York Times bestseller list or or, mm-hmm. or, or the advertising awards, and and assume that they've arrived at a point where self doubt has been eliminated because it must have, mustn't it? And yet, right. I, I, I I I'd be very surprised if 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 that is is ever true. Yeah, there may be some personalities where it is eliminated and you do sort of, but I think a lot of the time when you do come across that kind of extreme arrogance, it's probably a, a cover for something else. I mean, I, speaking from my own experience, and I have not been uh, the writer of New York Times bestseller list books, but, but I do notice that when things go well for me, get a book deal, people read a book and say positive things about it. I do notice that my natural tendency, and I think I'm gradually changing in this way but my natural tendency is to basically on some deep level think oh no like now uh, now the standard has the bar I've got to keep up with has gone up and like now I, I you know it was so nice when <laughs> I couldn't persuade anyone to give me any money to write a book and now like yeah. they've they've backed me and I've got to I've got to live up to that or you know this person has said that they think my book is brilliant. So now if I write a column, that's kind of a bit mediocre, the standard is higher. Everything has to be as good as whatever that, you know, I think it's, it's, it's so ridiculous, right. That that will be the response to someone saying something nice and supposedly sort of um, ego stroking. I think the, I think the, the shift that I try to internalize and talk to others about if you're prone to this, this response to good responses to your work, right. is just to, we have to try and shift a little bit from the idea that we're trying to sort of meet some standard, mm-hmm. um, which again is especially punishing if you if something in your brain makes the standard always always get higher and higher as you get better. Um, but that rather it's just you're just sort of expressing 
the, the, the talents and the skills that you already have, right? So when I signed a contract to get some money to write this book that I've written, you know, I found myself thinking like, oh, no, now it's all a huge deal because like they put some money down on it. But actually, the way to think about that is they wouldn't have put the money down if they didn't already think that you basically had the capabilities to to um, do the thing. And I think that goes for any kind of positive response to your work. But I do think that the dynamic that I'm describing in myself, for I'm sure that there are people at the very top of the New York Times bestseller lists with the, with the million dollar advances for whom it's yeah. all just as true, except a hundred times more acute and awful. And then, yeah. and that they're sort of nervous wrecks about it. Yeah. 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 Sure yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was at college with, um, I, I won't say their name, but with, with, with a writer who has enjoyed global success with, um, with a book and um, a, a novel. And they were, they had a three book deal and this first book uh, and the millions and at the point at which she was being lauded all over the world and there were, you know, movie rights and all this kind of stuff and she had um, more money than she could ever spend in the bank, she was traumatised with the prospect of having to write two more. That, you know, right. now there was this extraordinarily high bar yeah. that had seemingly yeah. come out of nowhere that, that, that she felt she would have to leap over. Yeah, no, I think, it, I think, it, and I think, you know, it can be very punishing in that respect because it's sort of at that level of money, it, it might be the case on some level that, that yeah. she has to in order to keep, things in order to you know in order to not be perceived as having like slipped up it's this whole sort of difficult second album yes yeah, yeah. Them, isn't it yeah well. yeah yeah so, absolutely um, well one of the things that you mentioned is is the difference between a a, a growth mindset and a, and a and a fixed mindset which I, I thought was really interesting perhaps for our listeners could you give us a quick uh, overview of of that idea yeah, this is a distinction that's attributable to a psychologist called Carol Dweck. And I think it has come in, some of the research around it has come in for a little bit of criticism as part of what's called the replication crisis in psychology. The idea that um, there are a bunch of sort of very media-friendly findings that that are at least more nuanced on closer inspection and in other cases, not, not, not true at all. I think fixed and uh, growth mindset is a great framing. I think that the some of the extrapolations that have come from it about how once you understand this difference, like you can achieve whatever you like in the world, is is probably um, is probably overegged. But the basic idea here is just that we tend to divide into people who respond to setbacks and failures uh, either with a fixed mindset, which means you see it as you know there was a bar you were supposed to reach and you and you fell short and you failed, or as people who sort of understand that, that they've got a growth mindset, they understand that. The experience of failure and setback is integral to growing, right? You're pushing against your edges. The um, the, the go-to cliched metaphor here is always uh, weight training because you have to sort of tear a muscle for it to, on some level, at a very small level, you have to tear a muscle for it to grow back uh, bigger. And I'm sort of talking about this when I talk about, like, you know, responding to praise by feeling that the bar has been raised in a stress-inducing way. It, yeah. it, it sort of... It, the fixed mindset idea leads you to sort of spend your days constantly feeling like you're on the back foot, that you don't quite measure up, um, that you um, th- that you have to sort of, uh, if you're really lucky and you do really well, you might get back to like zero balance on your in your uh, in your sort of uh, uh, cosmic. Uh, credit and debt arrangement and you know if you can let go of that on a level at all it's just helpful because then you realize that you know failure is feedback and it's and it's feedback that shows that you were doing something where failure was a risk and and that's what that's what that that is the nature of maybe by definition that is what growth 
um, is in some in some way. I was uh, I, re- I read about the Museum of Failure. Um, oh yeah, this 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 incredible place where um, where it's 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 like a, a, a vast supermarket, but every product is different, and every product is a product that has that has failed. Um, and you 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 write about this sort of secret archive um, that people sort of. Uh, Go, go and visit, but it's it's not often discussed. We have this really, um, it's quite a problematic relationship with things that go wrong, isn't it? We, we, this is a fascinating, I mean, it's quite a long, yeah, sorry, go on, you're going to... Go ahead. No, I was going to say this was such a fascinating um, uh, trip to do. The thing about this museum of failed products in, in Michigan, it's not technically a museum, but it started off as a collection of newly launched consumer products, right? It was just a guy who was in advertising realized that it would be kind of useful for somebody to buy one or two of everything that was launched so that they, you could create a sort of reference library for um, product designers and charge them money to come and access your store of, of things. Um, but so many products that are new to market end up failing that it automatically became a museum of failed products because almost all of them were failures and you just then, you know, you can weed out a few of the successes if you want. Something to really... like ninety percent, I think you. Something like that, yes. It's, yeah. um, you'll you'll be fresher on these on the on the details than, than I am actually. But <laughs> um, uh, and so he was then able to sort of offer this service to product designers from various different companies to come and um, inspect things that hadn't worked before and try and figure out what they wanted to do. And and he was always you know he was very amusing about the fact that um, some of the people who came to visit were from big multinationals designing products with excitedly like planning to introduce new ideas and discovering that the same ideas had been tried and had failed and had come from their own companies. But, but, um, but we're sort of so averse to thinking about failure that that, that people had not kept proper record because you don't celebrate it. You're not going to put it on display. You're going to sort of put it in a filing cabinet at best and hopefully never, see it again you know i think that is just another example i mean it has a sort of it shares a kind of structure that idea with with natural selection right with evolution the idea that it's just like a sort of endless process of failure in almost every case and is the only way through which the successful stuff can ever can ever emerge and so it creates this kind of imbalance doesn't it because the successes are the things that we're aware of but we have no idea about the sort of uh, the, the the mountain of failures that they they sit on top of and this creates unrealistic expectations for for for, for all of us really yeah and i remember writing that book about like you know the way that you get these kind of celebrity autobiographies from like richard branson or whoever and they're all saying like hey well i was willing to fail and uh, that's why i was such a huge success but again the same selection bias applies you're just never going to hear from the people who are willing to fail and then failed um because they're not going to get asked to write the um celebrity autobiography so there's all these systematic ways even when richard branson is celebrating the importance of failure in which we are not quite taking account of how much of everything is sort of is not a success yeah sure i don't know if you can hear but we the ice cream van is doing its evening round uh here at the moment it's uh, oh no i didn't hear that just one more just one cornetto playing <laughs> plangently in the background um, <laughs> So um, there, there are a couple of things that are, are sort of resonant with my own life at the moment that um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm interested to talk to you about. And uh, um, the, the, the question of time. Towards the end of last year, I read Brian Eno's diary, uh, which he wrote mm-hmm. 
25 years ago when he was about the same age as I am now. And and this inspired me to keep my own diary this year, which I've, I've, I've pretty much done. And And one of the reasons I did it was to try and sort of arrest things a little bit. You know, maybe on the back of last year where, where not much new happened um, and life was quite confined and constrained, I, I, I really felt this phenomenon that, that many people have observed of, of, of time speeding up. And so I thought yeah. I should, um, you know, I would start to note down things that happened. And, um, and, I, and I read in the book a thing, a very alarming statistic, which I've since <laughs> quoted and seen the friends, the faces of my uh, other 40-something friends drop which is a piece of research from the University of Cincinnati in the 1970s, which, which was about this phenomenon of time speeding up and, and our subjective experience of time. And, 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 and you wrote about how in this research, it says that if you're 20 today, you're effectively already over halfway through your life, even if you live to be 80, because of the way time is perceived. And if you're 40, right. then your life is 71% over. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm I'm 48 now I think so I'm, yeah it's it's slipping away fast Oliver <laughs> yes but sorry is there a question you want to ask a question I don't know I, I, I'm fascinated by this topic too so I can sort of yeah, yeah. chunter about it for ages but yeah no no, no. so this so I'm not sure to what extent yet the diary is arresting things um, it sort of feels like it is maybe right. a little bit or uh, maybe it's the sort of thing that will work in retrospect you know I will appreciate the sort of the things that I fitted in but I'm curious to, to I mean that, that quote was from one of your earlier books what's your what's your position on this 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 phenomenon now I mean, I think it's really important to be clear that this is about perceived time, right? It's like, yeah, it, it, and and so it is very depressing this way that time seems to speed up, and the last like few years seem to have taken no time at all, and 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 marginally younger than you then, but very marginally, and it's you really ever since you're sort of twenty five, it feels like you get this gradual acceleration, and goodness knows by the time you're seventy or something, it must feel like a year goes by in a week. Um, but the fact that it is perception means that it is manipulable, means that we can do something about it. And as you say, your example of a of a diary may be part of that. The sort of the standard approach is to try and like do lots of exciting different new things, right? And and this is if you can afford the time and the trips and you're not on lockdown, I mean, that is true, right? If you if you travel a lot, time will feel in in hindsight like it went more slowly. If you just think of a a recent trip you took and in the circumstances maybe there hasn't been one but but like usually if you think about somewhere you went for like a four-day weekend yeah six months ago it feels like a chapter in your life it feels like a little thing you went there you did it it was sure it was hopefully like very enjoyable or whatever four days in your regular life have have no width at all they've just they've just they've just gone uh, that that's to do with the fact that if, if lots of new data is coming in to your yeah. experience it it it, it, it the, the brain sort of codes the time as having lasted longer but but i think the diary idea and other things point to the idea that you can sort of achieve the same effect without all the expensive holidays <laughs> yeah right by sort of seeking to pay closer and closer attention to the things that you are already doing yeah you know, Shinzen Young, the meditation teacher who I wrote a bit about and quote a bit in the book, makes this argument that like, you know, if through training your concentration and meditation, you could, you could sort of take in twice as much data from every moment, then the rest of your life would be twice as long, because yeah. for the same reasons that we've talked about. And, um, 
you know, he, he would very much say that you can through meditation, certainly meditation more disciplined than I have managed to do. The more general point, obviously, is just like, you know, do what you can to pay attention. And I think diaries, photography, anything that sort of connects you more mm. directly to the, mm. to the things that are coming into your, to your brain uh, is, going to, is going to create the feeling of a more, uh, of a slower moving life in a good way i mean yeah yeah and, and I, I think probably for, for for many creative people uh, there is that moment um that rare moment of absorption when when time really just falls away as a mm-hmm. as a thing when you you're in that state of uh, of creative flow and you are sort of almost outside of time and time can pass really quickly but in a in, in a fulfilling way as well, because you end up with this thing, you know, you've, you've, you've lost yourself in that moment. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that I, uh, I, I gave me cause for reflection is, um, is, is the, this idea of time management that, that I, I, I write lists. I understand you're a list maker as well. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and, and I, I do, I have found myself, I still organize my emails into folders, which I know is not very, it's not, it's not the done thing these days. And I still, um, derive satisfaction from the occasional inbox zero that, that, that pops yeah. up. However, um, I am no less busier for all that and, um, find myself getting more and more busy and the more sort of tired and busy and stressed I become the more work I seem to take on and the more I get lost in this kind of vortex of busyness I know it well yes yeah yeah uh which drives me a little bit loopy and I and I have to I have to more often than not it's my wife says it's time you know I'm I'm hauling you out of this um you know, from behind your desk. But this, this, this seems to be a phenomenon you've observed as well. Yeah, right. Because I mean, it basically, yes, it's just this idea that like, we want to respond to a feeling of overwhelm by becoming more efficient, because we feel like that's the way to get on, we want to get on top of things, basically. That's yeah. the, that's, I think, a very, very widespread feeling that you want to sort of be in the driver's seat of your life, which means that there isn't a ton of stuff piling up um, while you're not watching. But the basic problem with all those kind of efficiency only productivity techniques or approaches, including sort of spending more and more time processing your email, is that, um, you know, the inputs are effectively infinite. There isn't a sort of end point to the number of emails that can come in. Um, Indeed, if you're very attentive to your email, you will generate more email because people will reply to your replies and, you know, you'll get a reputation as someone who's worth emailing and... And so, it, it, you know, the, I don't know who said it, but like the reward for good time management in this, re- in this regard is more work. And so you get busier and busier, more and more stressed, but the, but the, but the mountain that you're trying to get to the top of is effectively infinite. So um, you, you, you never will. You'll just get busier and feel more stressed. And it's a, it's a version of Parkinson's law, right? I mean, it's, yeah. this, it's this idea that you're just going to, that, that if you create a capacity um, in your working life it will get it'll get filled like um like when they widen the motorways and um and more traffic uh that comes along and the congestion yeah. is as bad as it was before i mean yeah i think you know your wife pulling you away from your desk is a, is a kind of um one sort of rough and ready example of what i think the what i think the answer is which is yeah. time boundaries which is saying you know and i i struggle with this myself but it's saying you know the volumes of email i get are such that i should try to spend about x amount of time 
yeah, 10 minutes, an hour, two hours, depends on your position, each day processing it, but but sort of put the time first in that, mm. in that, and when you're thinking about that, so that it's like, I'll do my 90 minutes and mm-hmm. then I'll walk away mm-hmm. and I'll try to do that regularly, like I was talking about with the writing, you know, as opposed to I will try to get to the end of, uh, of anything yeah. and get in control of it. And I think there's something really important to be said for just cultivating the willingness to not clear the decks, to not mm. be on top of things and to sort of be okay with the discomfort of it because that's yeah. the attitude you need in order to get up in the morning and spend three hours on something that you really care about yeah. instead of spending those three hours sort of yeah. under the illusion that what you're doing is, is mm. getting things ready. Because it's it's a fallacy, isn't it? I, I, you know, I'm, I'm really curious about this stuff, and I subscribe to quite a lot of bloggers and things, and I get these these emails with this really interesting looking stuff, and I see it, and I go, okay, I'm going to read that later, and I even started putting it in folders, you know, to read and yeah. stuff. The idea that I could ever read this stuff, even if I spent the, the rest of my life committing to it, is, is 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 just a fallacy. But we sort of we hang on to it, yeah. and uh, I wonder if. I, I'm, I'm sure you will have thought about this a, a lot in writing the, the present book, but is, is this at root to do with our relationship to death? You know, it, it is our sort yeah, of uh, our is. wrong-headed relationship to time, due to the, how uncomfortable we feel about contemplating the fact that we are um, this shard of brief light um, amid the void. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I don't know how I, I tend to not talk about death so much as finitude because I don't know how much of it. I don't feel like I understand how much in each person's case is down to the sort of the fact of dying. But it's more the sort of the sort of knowledge that time is limited, which obviously it only is because of the fact of dying. So it amounts to the same thing. Yeah, I think I think, and this is an insight that is by no means you because uh, um, originates with me. You know, goes back uh, all the way through the history of philosophy. We are these strange creatures who are as finite as any animal or any other animal but who have the capacity to sort of cogitate in a, in a much more sort of infinite way to dream infinite dreams and to hold ourselves to standards that are higher than our finitude would allow us to actually accomplish and you know it's this desire to become limitless to basically be a kind of a god with regard to your situation as opposed to sort of really fully inhabiting the the situation of being human. So, yeah, I think my sort of my big, deep, broad, you know, abstract thesis running through the new book is that, um, you know, we do almost anything we can to deny feeling the feeling of being constrained and limited by the position in which we find ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, When in fact, to the degree that we can, um, reconcile ourselves to it that that's when you're empowered to be live a sort of relaxed but um effective and productive um existence I mean, one of the people I, I try it for a few pages in the book i try to communicate uh the philosophy of heidegger uh to okay. readers as, as best as best i possibly can to be fair i'm not sure anyone has ever fully managed it but but i think whatever he was saying and putting aside the fact that he was literally a Nazi, which we have to just bracket, I'm afraid, there is, there is in his concept of what he calls being towards death, this idea of a, of a mode of living which somehow takes into account, maybe not constantly thinking about death or anything, but like which takes into account the truth of the fact that you're this little portion of time, 
It's passing all the time. You can't pause it. Every choice you make closes off all the others, and you're just sort of in this situation. You're on this little raft going down a, going down the the whitewater rapids or whatever, and that it there is a way of living in awareness of this that isn't um, sort of filled with terror. I think it I think it has some level of anxiety that probably can't be eliminated, but there is something about that sort of living in tune with the way things actually are that um, that is a much happier way to. To live, I'm not claiming that I, you know, I, mm. I handle it perfectly, but it enables you to see all the ways in which I think we we scurry away into feelings of limitlessness through sort of digital distraction and yeah. procrastination, and all these things can be seen as ways in which we try to hang on to that feeling yeah. that, that 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 like there's all the time in the world, and yeah. um, when there is, yeah. you, you mentioned digital distraction there, and. Um... And I've I've been wondering of late as I I mean I went on a train journey yesterday and um, which I hadn't done for a while and um, right I was going to say congratulations but these yeah, days that's yes. kind of extraordinary yeah <laughs> it was great uh, a little hot and the train was slow but um, no, nobody nobody stares out the window anymore very few people stare out the window you know that we 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 have our phones and um, we are immersed in them and I am as guilty as anybody I am. And when one thinks about how much we owe to those train journeys where there were no distractions and somebody stared out of the window and came up with an idea for a novel or a poem or, yeah. or an invention, um, I, I, I wonder to what extent we, we've, we've lost something quite important to do with our space for thinking. Yeah, I mean, I feel it. I think, um, I think many people feel it i think um you know it's all tied into what i was saying before because it is that sort of escape from uh, boredom is a very interesting um concept in this in this regard because it's sort of i think i think boredom is a reaction to experiencing limitation right the limitation that you can't mentally escape from a situation yeah you just have to live with it and yeah one way or another things come from that that confrontation with with boredom it's a i mean it's such a double-edged sword because clearly at the same time as the fact that we don't have the same time to sort of this kind of quiet and still time to uh uh, think great thoughts at the same time you know the internet is just genuinely a huge boon when it comes to sort of being exposed to perspectives and exposed sure. to facts and 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 uh, and ideas that you can sort of weave into your own things i mean i started in on as a journalist basically at the same time as the internet was widespread in uh sort of you know the very end of the 90s um one or two places that i did bits of training there was like an internet terminal in the corner of the office. And then by the time I had a full-time job, everyone's computer had access to a web browser. Um, And I couldn't have done, like, I I can't imagine having been able to do any of the things I did if I didn't have access to that information that that rapidly Mm -hmm. and that broadly. I made a whole sort of, my whole sort of unique selling point as someone worth employing was that I could take all that stuff quite rapidly and turn it into something. If it didn't exist, I would have been completely lost. So I think it's, it, it, again, it's this thing to do with boundaries, isn't it? It's to do with, it's to do with having both kinds of time and exposure in your, in your life. So, you know, I, uh, that's why 
one habit that I have managed to broadly uh, inculcate and stick to is not having social media or even most of the time a web browser on my phone. Okay. Um, I certainly do not pretend that I don't spend too much time on Twitter, but it's all happening through a through a laptop. And so once I've put it in my bag to go home from my co-working space here and I'm hanging out with my four-year-old son, you know, I don't have the option of, uh, of well, I do, but it's a little bit difficult. Yeah. Um, one of the things I'm finding hard at the moment, because I'm getting into this period just a couple of weeks before the book comes out, where actually I think it probably is right that I'm on Twitter a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's extremely aggravating in certain ways because I yeah. then because I don't seem to have it in me to be on Twitter for 40 minutes over the course of a day. It's, it's either nothing or three sure. and a half hours, apparently. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and still regarding the question of time, I, I, there was a, 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 a dichotomy that you observe. I, I'm not sure whether it's from you or, or, or somebody else, but they, they, when it comes to thinking about activities that we undertake, do, do, does the activity enlarge me? Or, or diminish me. Yeah, which I thought was a really interesting idea. Yeah, so useful. I mean, I can take no credit for it at all. It comes from a, a Jungian psychotherapist called James Hollis, whose whose work I really admire, and uh, his book "Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life" is uh, is comes highly recommended from me. Um, he's basically making the argument that like we're really bad at knowing what's going to make us happy. That's just a famous finding from psychology and just from from life i think um and so if you're facing any kind of dilemma i think this applies to small ones and big ones asking you know which of these options is gonna make me happy is a recipe for disaster uh you're very likely to choose options that are comfortable but not challenging in a in a way that would you'd actually be grateful to have been challenged you're likely to choose sort of needlessly selfish options or alternatively you're likely to just go with what you think is demanded of you and not look and not think about your own interests, depending on your personality. It's just a, it's a bad scene. But if you replace it with this question, would, will this choice enlarge me or diminish me? It sort of rewires the whole thing in a very interesting way because it, um, because we tend to know the answer, right? I mean, sure. I think this is, this is what's so sort of, it, it connects to something uh, a bit unconscious, I think. So, We've all had um, kind of tensions and negative experiences in personal relationships. And you've always felt like at some point in a relationship that you would probably actually be happier in some superficial way if for the next week you could just be like on your own somewhere completely different and outside of the relationship. But But there's a very clear division, I think, in terms of if you ask yourself of a sort of it could be a job. Or relation, you know, if you ask yourself whether the sort of difficulties that you're encountering are enlarging or diminishing of you, that enables you to dis- distinguish between the kinds of relationships and jobs that really are just soul killing and you should yeah. leave. Yeah. Um, and the kind where you're like, no, no, I'm being brought up against my edge here for a good reason. Like I am yeah. beginning, I am becoming a better partner as a result of this thing. It's worth sticking with. And, and you know, that it, it becomes the difference becomes very clear. Very early on in my time in in the United States where I live, very early on I sort of thought about maybe I should it was time to just go home and and return to the UK and uh sort of disentangle myself from everything I was doing here and just just like run back. And for me at that time when I first encountered this question, it was incredibly clear to me that for me, 
doing that would be the diminishing choice, right? Okay. I would be retreating. I would be running away from uh, things that I would that were better sort of dealt with and faced. But you could imagine the exact opposite, right? You could imagine someone who was hanging out, a British person hanging out in New York as pure escapism from their real lives. And it was actually now time to go home and like face the music. It totally sure. depends on your circumstances, but both of them, you get to it by this, by this mm-hmm. enlargement diminishment question, mm-hmm. because you kind of do know the answer deep down is, is the theory. Yeah. I think it's a, it's, it's a great way of helping us a little navigate um, the chaos of this thing yes, <laughs> that we yes. call life. <laughs> well, it's, it's been really lovely to talk to you, Oliver. We've, uh, we've, we, we, we're there with our hour. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, um, to reading the new book. Um, you've given me plenty to think about and, um, and lots of fodder for my uh, down-the-pub conversations. Um, Brilliant. When I'm those- glad. <laughs> when those fully kick back uh, into action. Um, and, uh, yeah. So thank you very much. Indeed. The book's 4,000 weeks, isn't it? And it's, um, it's coming out soon. Yeah, that's right. Um, if I can give the web address, um, 4,000 weeks book, 4000 weeksbook.com will take you to the page for wherever you are uh, listening to so that you can uh, pre-order and, or, or order. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, uh, thank you very much indeed for, for joining me on the Wind Thief Tat, Oliver, and uh, maybe I'll catch you for a pint in, uh, in North Yorkshire when, you, when you're back. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much. So there we go. Alas, with just an hour, I think we were only able to scratch the surface of Oliver's knowledge. Hopefully he'll be up for that pint one day. For now, you can sign up for Oliver's twice-monthly email, The Imperfectionist, at oliverberkman.com. I really loved Oliver's last book, The Antidote, and I've no doubt 4,000 Weeks is going to be a great read too. If you enjoyed this or any other episode of The Wind Thief Tap, please do leave a review. It'll help more people to find us. That's it from me for now. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>